Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When creating a new dance work, effort, personal investigation, stamina, and rhythm are the main themes for choreographer India Childs. Her upcoming performance, A Dance Reunited at Atlanta Contemporary, is a collaboration with France Atlanta, and the event is part of a multimedia program for the Elevate Arts Festival this month. We'll hear from Elevate's curator, artist Charmaine Minifield, and choreographer India Childs about exploring the global arts community's struggle and resurgence through COVID-19 later this hour. First, known for his unabashed, no-holds-barred stand-up and raunchy routines, comedian Jim Norton will perform at the Punchline in Atlanta tomorrow through Saturday. After having several shows canceled last year due to the pandemic, He's back on stage with fresh, punchy humor and joins me now via Zoom. Jim Norton, welcome to City Lights. Hello. Thanks for having me. How did you first get into comedy? It was honestly the only thing I ever wanted to do. And I I wanted to be a lawyer at one point, but Princeton University wouldn't accept me because I had dropped out of high school. So I said, you know what? (laughs) I have... No education. I'm driving a forklift. And I said, this is what I really want to do. I left myself no backup plan on purpose because it forced me to be a good comic or I would have no way to make a living. I read that Richard Pryor was an inspiration. Well, he was my favorite comedian of all time. I imagine if he saw my act now, he would probably say, take my name out of your bio. Uh, He'd probably be slightly embarrassed that I love him so much. But he was the guy that made me want to do comedy. But I also, like, obviously George Carlin, but I I think the two most underrated comedians ever are Joan Rivers and Robert Klein. Like, people love them, but I think not as much as they should love them. Wow. Do you think Joan Rivers may be underrated because she was a woman in comedy at, at a time when there weren't many? 
I don't know. She was so ferocious and she was always writing. She was fearless. You know, she puts a lot of us to shame with the fact that she would say anything she wanted in the form of a, a joke. I saw her uh, in the cutting room here in New York with an ex-girlfriend of mine. And we watched her for an hour and she was 80 at the time. And, you know, she had note cards on the stage, on the floor. And she went up there and she was a barbarian for an hour. And I mean, it was great. There was nothing off limits. It was cutting. It was funny. And, and I'm like, she's one of the all-time greats and she doesn't get the credit she deserves. I haven't read this, but my feeling after watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is that she's the inspiration for it. Do you think so? Do you know, I've never seen the show. I, I'm so... Really? No, I'm really bad with updated like you know i i have almost no time to to get into a show and so i would rather rewatch the wire or the sopranos which is an annoying quality i have i i just rewatch things instead of taking a chance i hear it's a great show but i've never seen it i'd be curious about your take on it as a professional comedian and they seem to strike the right notes to to get the tone down and rachel brosnahan is, is fantastic but I feel like I'm seeing Joan Rivers in it so I hope we get to talk again Jim and maybe you will have watched it by then yeah it's something it's been on my radar and and again I, I don't know where to watch anything I'm so I mean I'm 53 but I handle a television like I'm 88 I mean I'm <laughs> so awful at finding out where something is what time it is but that's a show I've been wanting to watch because, again, it's about stand-up, and, and I've heard nothing but good stuff about it. Well, you could do worse than The Wire and The Sopranos. Yeah, but I'm also rewatching Lost, which I'm not proud to admit. I actually am going <laughs> back for a Lost rewatch. I'm saying that and ashamed of myself. Many of us are grateful for those reliable platforms, especially having lived through the past 18 months. I was watching one of your stand-up routines that's part of Netflix series, The Degenerates. This was your routine about flat earthers. Oh, yeah. And then I saw on YouTube, one of the comments said, there should be a reality show where flat earthers have to find the edge of the world. I know you watched the documentary on Flat Earthers. That's your routine. Would you watch that TV show as well? Not only would I watch it, I would become a Flat Earther so I could be in it. Uh, let's be <laughs> honest. Hollywood's not exactly calling me for a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I would absolutely watch that. And that's a brilliant idea for a show. Like, hey, if you guys believe in this so much, here's a budget and a camera crew. Let's help you find the edge of the earth. That's a great idea for a show. There you go. So one of the things that you revealed in your flat earther routine really struck me because I thought it was a window into your humanity. Would you talk about why you think flat earth conspiracy theorists aren't harmful in the way of other conspiracy theorists? Oh, I, for those guys, I, I mean, I, I think it's an odd conspiracy, but I put it up there with the moon landing in the sense of they're not denying murder victims or they're not denying the pain of other people. Like, you know, a lot of these conspiracies are saying, like when you look at the Newtown or, or other 9-11, 
they're denying the agony of all of these families and the fact that all these people were murdered. Yeah, I think all conspiracy kind of comes from the same place in the brain, but I, I think the fact that they are denying these murdered kids or these, you know, almost 3,000 people who died on 9-11 is just, it's psychotic uh, to, to think that these, these families are faking it. Like to tell a family, these are crisis actors and you're faking it. I mean, I, I just, I can't wrap my head around that level of distrust. Mm-mm. In 2016, you were a guest on the show Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, along with the feminist writer and activist Lindy West. And you debated in front of a live audience about censorship in comedy and if some things should not be the subject of jokes. Rape culture. A year later, 2017, victims of sexual harassment and assault reignited the phrase, Me Too. Jim, five years later, have your feelings changed about some topics being off limits in comedy? No. It's funny. That that wasn't even my joke we were debating. That was another comedian had done a joke and it had kind of got out into the zeitgeist a little bit. So it was more the principle of what's okay to make fun of. And as a performer, you know, comedians have to deal with things through humor, but no one is telling Stephen King not to kill children in his books. No one is telling actors not to play slave owners, not to play slashers, not to play murderers or to play rapists. So for people to think that comedy is harmful when portraying someone committing a, a horrible act in seriousness, could get you nominated for an award. I, I, I just reject the idea that comedians as performers should be limited in a way that any other form of the arts is not limited. Like, you know, people not liking things. You know, you look at the National Endowment of the Arts, there was a piece of art called Piss Christ, which was a crucifix in a jar of urine. Or there was a guy who painted the Virgin Mary out of, out of dung, right? It was like an artistic thing from Africa or something. And somebody didn't like it, so they went in and splashed paint on it. Because they objected to it, it offended their values, they splashed paint on it. And people really rallied against the guy who splashed paint on it, and they were right. So I think as a performer, any subject you want to touch is absolutely acceptable. All that matters is do you do it well or do you do it poorly? And I think that's all you should be judged on. Well, something you said in that conversation with Kamar Bell and Lindy West was very impressive to me because you made a point about context. And you mentioned Michael Richards and the fact that he said something terrible. He made a racist remark in anger versus making a joke within the context of trying to be funny, which is not to say that you condone racist jokes, but the idea that intention is a part of the equation and that people who are concerned about pushing the limits of good taste or what's proper may not be thinking about context. Well, you know what's interesting is 
you're right. The context is what matters. And I think as thinking people, like I feel like the whole country, everyone is just pretending. I mean, with with a lot of things. I think we're all just pretending. It's like watching 300 million people star in a play that no one has read the script for. And we, we watch something like a horror film. Everybody understands the context. Uh, this is a story. This is meant to bring out a certain emotion in me, which is fear, which is whatever. So when you're doing jokes, people are sitting down and they understand this is a comedian. The context is we're here to laugh at things. It could be silly, innocuous things. It could be horrendous things. Uh, but we're here to laugh and to kind of suspend disbelief for an hour. There might be some truth in it. There might be some wild exaggerations. Michael Richards, I think the difference was that people saw in a moment he was reacting angrily to a heckler. And I think anyone who's not pretending can honestly tell the difference between a person doing jokes and a person angrily reacting to a live moment. Hmm. You said comedy is not a cause, but a reaction to violence. Yes, or, or horrible things. Yeah, I, I firmly believe that. that that's profound. Well, it doesn't cause it because you never hear comedians getting credit for good behavior. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where people want to blame comedians for certain things. But I think that's such a cheap cop out and so dishonest. No, I don't believe any joke has ever caused a person to behave violently. And when you look at it, you know, you look at like uh, profilers and FBI agents who deal with murderers. And they say that when the media shows gunmen, and they read their manifestos and they give them like, you know, names like the Joker. They are contributing to it. Comedians have never been tagged with contributing to violence. And yet every time there's a shooter, the media will mention his name. They'll, they'll talk about his manifesto. They'll talk about his evil motives. So they're continuing to do it, knowing what the results are and they don't care. But yet this is the same culture that thinks comedians should be slapped for making jokes that are tasteless. It's just, it's insanity to me. Can I presume you're not saying that concerns about censorship should now target the media instead of comedy? <laughs> no, 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 no censorship. No, no, no. I don't believe in that at all. What I mean by that is that the press is knowingly doing, doing something that personality profilers and FBI profilers have said, look, please don't do this because it does help create problems. But they're doing it because, again, it gets clicks and it gets people interested. It's not just a part of telling the story. They sensationalize the story because, again, it's a business. So that's the same culture that allows that to scold comedians. To me, the inconsistency in that is crazy. In your upcoming show here at the Atlanta Punchline, will you talk about the past year's adversities? Oh boy, yeah, I, I get it. But but again, and when I do it on stage, like you know, we're having a nice chat. But I really do keep it funny on stage. I, I don't sit there and lecture on stage. I mean, I talk about the vaccinations, uh, the anti-vaxxers, people getting their life ruined on social media, my own sex life. Like I do, kind of cover everything. And uh, the hour has been—it's been really a great time so far. Getting back on, it was 15 oh. months. I was going crazy. Yeah, what did you do in quarantine? I got fat. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I literally couldn't stop shoving food into my face. I was panic eating for 15 months. It was horrible. Oh, well, this has been so enjoyable. And, and now that you're out and touring, I don't suppose you'll be turning to food for comfort. You'll just be eating healthy. I hope so. I mean, because it's a hard one to stop. Because once I like, you know, once, once you realize like God, snacking is really fun again, 
uh, it's kind of hard to put it down now that I'm doing gigs. So now I'm just doing shows and I'm still getting fat. So hopefully I can replace that with something. Maybe I'll find a woman who will, you know, decide to go out with me and that, you know, <laughs> so, you know, good luck. <laughs> Comedian Jim Norton will perform at the Atlanta Punchline Thursday through Saturday. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with Tara Coit, the author of Real Talk about LGBTQIAP. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In honor of this weekend's Atlanta Pride virtual celebration, let's listen back to my interview with the Atlanta author Tara Coit. Her book, Real Talk About LGBTQIAP asks questions about human sexuality that many might want to ask. Through interviews with individuals from all walks of life, the book provides thoughtful and insightful answers. When the book was released, Tara Coit stopped by the WABE studios to discuss the work, which she calls a pursuit of the heart. It hurts my heart when I see elected officials, uh, religious leaders, and other people condemning someone because of their sexuality or saying that you are not allowed to be attracted to someone of the same sex or you can't come to our church or you can't live in this place or receive medical care because you're transgender. I mean, how can we treat another human being that way? How can we deny another human being the exact things that we say we cherish for ourselves? And part of that was my motivation to understand why we why do we treat people this way? Why do we think and behave the way we do when we say that everybody should have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? So compassion, empathy, humanity is really yes. at the heart of this book because you state at the beginning, 
you are heterosexual, you are not dealing with any of the problems or crises that many of the people you write about have faced, and yet you wanted to embark on this project. Yeah, one of the, well, the first question that most people ask me is why? Why are you doing this? One reason certainly is that I'm a writer and I like to write about things that are interesting to me. I like to write about things that I think need more discussion and things that I think can help make us better people, make create a better society and a better world. And certainly this topic, real talk about LGBTQIAP, hit all of those marks. Would you share the story about the wisdom in your mom's Christmas card? This is part of the card that my mom sent me maybe two two years ago um, for Christmas. Dear daughter, my wish for you is that you'll always know a little bit more today than you knew yesterday about life, about yourself, about what you can do and create in this world. And when I read that, I mean, it hit me that, okay, I have to, that's what I'm doing. And it made me cry. One of the many times that I've cried (laughs) in the process of writing this book. And I don't think of myself as a very emotionally expressive person, but I have cried more in the past five years of writing this book, I think, than I've cried in my whole life of 50 plus years. There are a lot of heartbreaking stories. (gasps) Yes. And there's also reconciliation that you write about. That's very understandable. You write that your hope is to give faces and heartbeats to the real people behind the letters LGBTQIAP. Tara, how does the structure of the book achieve that goal? The way the book is set up is I ask questions, questions that many of us have, And I use a combination of real people, real voices, to answer those questions. In addition to research, I rely on organizations like Georgia Equality and GLAD and PFLAG, the Pew Research Center, American Psychologists Association. And then some of the voices are some um, very prominent people here in Atlanta, the late Joan Garner, Philip Rafshoon, Dr. Eric Wright, at uh, Georgia State University, Ryan Romerman at the LGBTQ Institute. Real Talk has a chapter that provides an entire glossary of terms such as biological sex, gender, gender identity, cisgender, and sexuality. Who are your targeted readers? My reader from a general perspective, is the person who wants to understand more. The person who says, well, I don't know what these terms mean. I don't know what our different sexualities or gender identities mean, and I want to learn more. Why are there so many letters in the acronym LGBTQIAP? I think... It's about identity. Everybody wants to be identified. And initially, everybody was lumped under the gay identity. Didn't matter what sexuality or gender identity they were. And as 
time has progressed and more people have become um, vocal about their identity and accepting of their identity, they're saying, hey, wait a minute. No, that's that's not who I am. I have this particular identity. I'm bisexual or I'm pansexual or I'm asexual. Um, So I think it's about identity and I think we should recognize that it's worth it. It's worth allowing everyone to be seen and heard. The book provides historical context for the terminology. Would you tell us about the evolution of the word queer? Queer has had several different meanings. Uh, Currently, some people use it to describe their sexuality or gender identity. Some people use it as an umbrella term for everything LGBTQIAP. Uh, Some people don't use it at all. But I was able to trace back to the 1500s, the first time that there was a use of the word queer and then again popping up again in the 1800s but it was referring to something like spoiled spoiled food and then somewhere along the way it began to morph to refer to a person maybe they're behaving strangely or differently it was identified started to be used towards men who maybe were effeminate and it's never left us and it continues to morph and change the meaning. But to go back centuries and originally to have been associated with uh, spoiled food, <laughs> I mean, it, it just brings home the power of these pejorative meanings. Words are, um, words are certainly powerful and they change with meaning over time and certainly when we talk about the Bible that's a whole nother um, discussion about words and meanings of things being changed and distorted but I find it all very interesting. One question you raise that I found striking is why are we so deeply concerned about whom other people have sexual intercourse and relationships with. (laughs) I've talked to many people. Some psychologists suggest that it's a way to deflect from our own thoughts or sexuality. And when you think about it, certainly here in America and Western civilization, sex is, we have a love-hate relationship with it, and we think of it as dirty, although it's something we like and we want. And so it's easier to talk about other people's sex, other people's relationships than it is to talk about our own because then I I don't have to seriously talk about sex and it's easier. I can laugh about it Um, or I can point the finger at someone and say, well, they're not a good person and maybe that makes me feel better about who I am or what I'm doing. Asking about that preoccupation or even why it should register about who's having sex with whom leads to your discussion of violence against people who are LGBTQIAP. As with other forms of prejudice, it's incomprehensible why people who are not inciting violence, who are not provoking Mm -hmm. violence, toward anyone else 
are victims of it themselves. A part of me says I don't want to understand it, um, but I do think it's important for us to ask why do we care so much to the point of becoming violent, to the point of beating people, killing people, creating laws to keep them from adopting children or getting or keeping a job? Why does our lack of understanding or dislike of who someone is move to this point that we feel like we have to make them suffer? And that, because that's what it is. We are making people suffer. Uh, We're punishing them for being who they are, who they naturally are. It is natural. And part of it, I think, is fear, Uh, certainly lack of understanding, which is why I wrote this book in hopes that some people will try to understand and then realize that, well, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have the right to try and make someone be who I want them to be. And I don't have the right to punish someone for being who they are, especially when who they are, as you said, Lois, it's not hurting anyone. You know, my friend Tiffany and her wife being married, having a family, going to work, being active members of their community, that does not hurt anyone. So let's let them be. Indeed. Chapter 13 was the most engrossing for me, I think. It's titled The Holy Word, (laughs) The Holy Word and Religion. This must have been one of the more time-consuming portions of your research. Absolutely. It was also the most rewarding, I want to say. I was raised United Methodist Church. I was educated in Catholic schools from kindergarten through college. And I just assume that if the priest or the pastor said it, it must be right. And I never looked it up. And when I decided to write this book, I said, well, I got to look it up. And what I found was amazing to me, but it also kind of gave me some relief because I did not see the God and some of the hatred. And I don't want to know that God that they're talking about. And ultimately, so uplifting in terms of the takeaway one has from either Bible. You go into great detail in terms of translations and a misappropriation Mm -hmm. of words. This was also thought-provoking. How long did this part of the book take you? I mean, you were talking with priests, rabbis, theologians, ministers. Well, the whole process of writing the book took almost five years, and this was certainly one of the first things I started, and I kept going back to this chapter. But you quote chapter and verse, literally (laughs) interpreting and demonstrating that Jesus never said that. Hebrew Bible never said that. The claim that God destroyed Sodom because of homosexuality false. Right. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. And I don't want anybody just to take my word for it. There are religious scholars, biblical scholars, Old and New Testament, people who studied 
the languages that the Bible has been written in, the original languages, not English, um, and went back and said, well, this is the word that was used then, and it doesn't mean homosexual. I mean, because homosexual and there's someone else who's writing another book about um, the Bible specifically in homosexuality. Homosexual, the word, was not introduced into the Bible until 1946, the English version. So homosexuality was a mid-20th century reference. I like this quote of yours. We should ask how it benefits faith leaders to manufacture a reason that God did not offer. You're taking on some heavy-duty stuff here, Tara. I feel like it has to be done. It has to be done, especially when there's ample proof that they are distorting their God's word. I'm not challenging anyone's religion, but I am challenging what we're assigning to God, Jesus, or whoever. And I, I say this in among my friends and say, you need to stop lying on Jesus. Jesus did not say this. Jesus did, I preached love according to the Bible. So if you're telling me that Jesus hates somebody because of their sexuality, you're lying. The book concludes with guidance for loved ones. Was this topic among the most important for you when you began the project? Yes, because there are too many children and teens who run away from home, who hurt themselves, or who attempt suicide and unfortunately are successful because they don't feel accepted. Mental health professionals show that a child who doesn't receive support from their family, their immediate family, has a much greater chance of doing one of those things, leaving home, trying to hurt themselves, um, trying to commit suicide. So it was important for me to try to help parents and family members gain some understanding and realize how important, even if you don't understand, it's important to let your child know that you love them. Atlanta author Tara Coit. More information about her book, Real Talk About LGBTQIAP, is available on our website, wabe.org. Additionally, you can learn more about this weekend's virtual Pride celebrations at atlantapride.org. Coming up, the Elevate Atlanta Arts Festival is ongoing this month, and we'll hear about a multimedia program with an upcoming dance performance at Atlanta Contemporary. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. 
Atlanta's annual public arts festival, Elevate, is well underway with a calendar full of enticing options for live events all over town. Among these is a collaboration between Elevate and France Atlanta called A Dance Reunited. It's a multimedia program taking place October 17th at the Atlanta Contemporary, exploring the global arts community's struggle and resurgence through COVID-19. The program features a film screening, a discussion panel, and a performance of a new dance work by India Childs called Tokoliana. India Childs joins me now via Zoom, along with Charmaine Minifield, visual artist and curator of Elevate 2021. India and Charmaine, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Please tell us about A Dance Reunited. What brings these artworks and the discussion together under this banner? This project is a really special project in our series for Elevate because the city of Atlanta has a long-standing partnership with France Atlanta. And each year we've presented a work in collaboration with them. And this year, the project is a film that comes out of the dance experience out of West Africa from the continent. And uh, our filmmaker that is a part of the project will um, be with us in broadcast from overseas in conversation. And all of this will happen through our partnership with the Atlanta Contemporary and Dance Canvas there at the Atlanta Contemporary on October 17th. This project feels really right for Elevate as well because it comes from the experience of dancers during quarantine, during the pandemic. And a lot of our work does that, uh, that the city of Atlanta is supporting. It highlights that what was the result of our time within, that we went within during that time of reflection. A lot of the work is presented as a result of that time. So we're excited about this project. Yeah. India, can you give us an idea of what Tokoliana is about and your inspiration for it? Yes. So this work is um, inspired by the Congolese music group Coco Co. Um, they have a song entitled Tokolena, and it means we are devouring each other in Lingala. And the way the music group works, they discuss many of the social issues that are happening within the country but they use upbeat and experimental sounds and music to discuss these topics. So I took the lead from them by um, using high energy music, but sprinkle with many of the social issues that are happening here in America. And this work really holds my emotions from the pandemic. It holds my, my anger, my frustration, but most importantly, my joy and, and the need to keep going if you must. Um, it features six amazing, incredible black female dancers that I call spiritual engines because I've asked for them to, to connect with the hope and their ancestral connection to continue to strive uh, each day and to let the, the violence that has happened on, 
on black and brown bodies wash over them and motivate them more so to continue their efforts to thrive or survive, I guess. So this work has a, a very um, personal connection with me because I found myself in states during the pandemic of depression, hopelessness, but I would start to move and dance and I would sweat in my room and just create this very contemporary but African-inspired movement that went against that sorrowful feeling that I that was heavy on my spirit by finding that smile and joy to say, yes, this is happening, but I'm going to take this in and continue to push for a better tomorrow. From seeing the peace, I hope that people will feel um, inspired and rejuvenated and activated for something, I guess. Mm. You mentioned six dancers. Where are they from? Well, I have six incredible Atlanta-based dancers. They are fantastic. For this project, I chose to work with dancers that I have not previously worked with before. So it was a new experience for all of us. And it was very powerful because this work is so spiritually connected that we became very close very quickly because I was asking them to connect to their higher power, to God, to nature, to, with, to themselves. And they were ready for the challenge, ready to embrace the movement that was requires a lot of stamina and vigor and a lot of sweat. But it's so beautiful to see how we built this small community, this strong but powerful community within this short period of time. So they're all strong Atlanta-based dancers. I'm intrigued by the music. You're using music by the Congolese group Kokoko, you mentioned. Yes. I'm curious, what about this music spoke to you? Actually, I found this music from, uh, I used to dance with a company um, called the IBZ and the New Utility, and she sent this playlist to us because we no longer were able to rehearse with each other. Two of the songs kept speaking to me every time I would play them in my room or in my own moment of just meditation, and I could not get them out of my spirit. They were very strong, they were very powerful, and the rhythm just created this heartbeat that I enjoyed, this ancestral heartbeat that I wanted to capture throughout movement. replay the songs over and over again and I kept developing different rhythms within the music and I would find new rhythms and I would create rhythms and I would just continue to stay with that for a minute and it became so that I would just start choreographing on my own I had no intention of building the work but I just started to had this desire to express myself through movement because I was having a hard time articulating how I was feeling during the pandemic through words or journaling so I would just put all the energy through the movement and having the music be the language I was trying to develop through the dancing. So yeah, the music played a heavy influence or heavy role in in the development of this piece. And it helped me develop the type of movement or type of um, quality that I wanted to capture where I wanted to push the effort and stamina to the body's limits. I would find myself exhausted after rehearsing with myself or, or using the music. And I enjoyed that level of uh, release because when I would get so tired 
from the movement, I became submissive to whatever the music was calling for, my body was calling for, and I would feel like I was in this trance, this kind of trance dance type of movement, and new movement would come out of that. So yeah, it was a very transformative experience because there wasn't anywhere to go because studios were closing, theaters were closed. So I was trapped in my mind, but I found a healthy way to do that through the connection of the music and find this rhythm within myself. Oh, I love how you describe the trance-like state it left mm-hmm. you in. I was thinking you are actually channeling beyond the music. Mm-hmm. Charmaine, this year's Elevate is themed Reopen, Reconnect, Reignite, Revival. It really suggests a celebratory feeling, bringing in-person art experiences back to us. Do you feel reignited, reconnected with the art scene this year in a new way? Lois, I do in particular because I'm finally returned from my trip to the Gambia where I was quarantined unexpectedly. We arrived back here to the city to present the Praise House project. And since we've been back in May, it has been a reunion. And I've been so encouraged by my colleagues like India and others in their work that they created during the quarantine and pandemic. Some of the descriptions that India is sharing right now, it's exactly the same experience that I had while I was in the Gambia. We were all just you know, emotionally spent, but in a way that was activated within us to want to affect change in our environment, in our community. And we found, we went so deep within. We, and some of us, we, we went to an ancestral home and to a, you know, an innate indigenous place to find that encouragement uh, forward. And all of my work has since then centered around the ring shout and movement as medicine and resistance. And so everything India is describing, (laughs) and I've seen this work, it expresses through that. But, you know, it wasn't just me in India. It was the whole field in visual art, theater, dance, uh, music, all of this new work was was surfacing and coming forward. As we reconnect with each other, we've been sharing this work, and we've been sharing it with audiences in new ways. And, And then being, you know, having to be innovative about how we share the work and how we reconnect has been uh, really exciting. So now we are global. Our sphere of influence is global and our our reach, because in many cases we're virtual, but also now we're very physical because we're asserting and affirming life by coming back out into public spaces. And so for me, it does, yes, it feels like a revival. Oh, well, (laughs) you know, there's so much beauty in that. Giving technology its due, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, Charmaine, we spoke when you were in Gambia as though, you know, it was just a phone call, except we were on screens and recording our conversation. And the idea that during this terrible time, being online did enable us to connect and for artists to have a platform to share work was extraordinary. Yes, it was, Lois. To me, it was a lifeline. 
It was community. It was that energy that India describes among her dancers that I talk about in my ring shout. It happened over technology. It happened over, over time and over the ocean and over beyond our own private safe spaces that we were all in. We somehow stayed connected. For me, it affirmed the life when there was so much loss. We were in a collective global mourning, really what was happening. We all stayed connected and wanted to see real change in the world as well, but also that our future would be sure, affirmed, and even brighter within all of humanity. Can you tell us just a few highlights, a couple of other special events you are especially excited to bring to the public? Which ones were just a no-brainer for you when considering what to book for the festival? It sounds like a dance reunited was one of them. Yes. First of all, all of Elevate this year is citywide. We focused on different zones of the city eight different districts over the eight weeks of Elevate. We'll be downtown on the 8th through the 10th. And we have a whole focus on the downtown district at Underground. Uh, We have a number of artists there that we're uh, highlighting. On the West Side weekend, which is the 15th through the 17th, uh, we're presenting this at the Atlanta Contemporary. We have a a screening of a Spring and Third, a film about a yin yang cafe and the music culture of the 90s happened at the West Side Cultural Center. On October 22nd through the 24th weekend, we're in Southeast Atlanta. So we're gonna be in the Beacon District in Grant Park and it's a huge mural festival that's happening there. I don't wanna forget to acknowledge the work that the Atlanta Office of Cultural Affairs has done to secure funding from Invest Atlanta. And through recovery grants, we were able to support individual artists. India's project is one. All of those that I'm mentioning are artists and works that are receiving this funding. So we have a few projects that are happening also on the Southeast side in the Grant Park area. Color the Cove is the mural festival. Poets for the Revolution is another a project with a poet Ashley Hayes. And then my praise house will open in Southview Cemetery on that weekend. And then Southwest weekend is our finale. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> it's huge. Oh my God. Fort Mac is going to be so much fun. On Friday night at Fort Mac, there's a presentation by a Dama called Permanent. And Fahamu Peku and his community has a whole project. Kamansi Dance Theater is presenting as a part of that. On that Saturday, we're at Gordon White Park. We are doing a big day party at the Met with uh, DJ Salah Nanta. We have on that Saturday, we're showing Boo 2 at Fort Mac. (laughs) Tyler Perry's movie at the drive-in, which will be super fun. And then that Sunday, we have a presentation at the Hammond's house, a world party. So that whole weekend is just outside in the streets, music, live music, visual art, and Articulate is partnering with us to do a, an activation at the Met. And it's just a long list. You have to go on our website, Elevate 
atlart.com and check out the full schedule and definitely just get out, you know, and go see all of these good things. Artist Charmaine Minifield is the curator of Elevate and dancer-choreographer India Childs. The Elevate Festival is underway through October 31st. India's performance of Tokoliana will be at Atlantic Contemporary on Sunday, October 17th at 3 p.m. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll continue celebrating Atlanta Pride and learn about a Queer Days Night coming this weekend to Metropolitan Studios. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.